Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we need the Bible to help us to understand the world in which we live And even more so we understand ourselves as much as we can in this lifetime. So today, would you help us to see ourselves in Romans 2 and to see what it is that you want to say to us today, especially those who would count themselves as religious people. So speak today, I pray, O Lord, from this great and helpful passage. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles and we're in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. We're making our way through the great book of Romans. And I want to remind you that the theme of this book is the righteousness of God. In particular, it is that the righteousness that God requires of us is the righteousness that he gives to us as we believe in his promises about us in Jesus. What Paul does in this book is he sets out two paths, two contrasting paths. One, the path of works, and the other, the path of faith. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. So the beautiful story of this book is God requires righteousness of us. And that righteousness that he requires, he grants to us as we put our faith in the person and work of Jesus. And what you need to know is that that righteousness changes everything. It changes how you see yourself, it changes how you see the scriptures, it changes how you see the world in which you live, it changes how you see your sin, it changes how you sing. For instance, it it means that when you understand the gospel and what has happened to you, when you are saying words like, the blood of Jesus cleanses me, it means that there's something within your heart that just says, yes, that is everything that I love and hold to and cling to. Why, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're trying to figure out what does the Bible say about you and your sin and how does the cross relate to all of that, we're so glad that you're here today and hope that today will help you understand just another angle of what it means for God to give you righteousness based upon the work of Jesus. Now, we're in the middle of a pretty heavy section. From chapter 1 and verse 18 to chapter 3 and verse 20, 
Paul is identifying our depravity, our brokenness, and how desperate we are in need of help. You see, the issue of humanity is not that we refuse to believe that we're imperfect. There's nobody in this room who would say, perfect, (laughs) right? Right? Okay, right? Just just checking, because I don't want to hang out with you if that's how you, perfect, bye, you know, so no thanks. There's no, our problem is not that we know that we're imperfect. That's not our problem. Our problem is that we don't realize how utterly helpless we are. So we need to know how desperate we are, that we are not just imperfect, but we are fundamentally broken. And we need God's help. And that's what the gospel brings. And so what Paul does is he sets up uh, these three chapters, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, to lay a backdrop, a dark backdrop, against which the gospel, the good news that God gives righteousness based upon faith in Jesus, to people who don't deserve it, who are helpless, who can never rescue themselves. And he sets this up in order for us to see how how far we have fallen and how lost we really are. Now, his end game is to get us to chapter 3. In fact, just before we get into chapter 2, look at chapter 3 and verse 21, 22, 23, and 24, because this is where all of this is headed. So you need to understand the end game to help us. We're about halfway through this fairly heavy section, but Paul wants us to get to this, verse 21 of chapter 3. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. So here's why he's writing all this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So every person in this room, every human being ever born on planet earth, we all share the same malady. And that is that we have all fallen short of God's glory. And then he gives the hope and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So God's remedy for our malady of having fallen short of God's glory is Christ. The cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, where God takes Jesus' sacrifice and applies it to our account, washes us of our sins, cleanses us and makes us whole, and rescues us from our problem, which is us. That's what Romans 1, 2, and 3 are all about. And Paul is showing us this dark backdrop from various angles. Last week was a heavy text. And my question for you this morning is this. So what did you hear last week? What did you hear last week? Last week we learned about the brokenness of our humanity of our culture we learned that we're so deeply marred because of this fallen short of god's glory thing that it affects our most intimate desires and our most intimate actions we saw that brokenness goes all the way down to our understanding of who we are and our sexuality and even homosexuality and last week we saw how far we have fallen Do you know what, Paul, as a pastor, he knows people, he knows us, he knows churches, he knows religious people really well. Because while at one time we're we're talking about how far the world has fallen, how far the, the, the pagan world has fallen, Paul also knows that in the midst of all of that sort of direct language about how bad the world is, 
that there are some people who hang around religious services who when they hear words like that, like Romans 1 that we talked about last week, somewhere in the back of their mind, they think this. Yeah, it's about time somebody said that. It's about time someone talked about those people. It's about time somebody called that out. And there are people who hang around churches and religious things, and they think that in their religious moralism, that somehow they're the exception to the rule. So what happens is in the midst of a really strong statement, Paul comes on board with a second strong statement. And that is, he talks about people who would consider themselves to be religious or perhaps moral. And so the context of today is Paul is talking to Jews who because of their background, their chosen status of God, as God's people, their, the moral law that they had received, that they might hear his words about the pagan culture and think, yeah, that's right, those people are lost. And then Paul comes, but so are you. And the point here is this, is whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you've been moral or immoral, we all share the same problem. We have all fallen short of God's glory. And so what Paul gives here are seven warnings to religious people. And by religious, I don't mean people who have a genuine faith in Jesus. Instead, I mean people who would count on their background, their history, their, their conservativeness. And they would put their trust and their hope in that. And embedded in these seven warnings is a caution. A caution that we take careful inventory And as we even go to the Lord's table at the end, that we are reminded that if we understand God's grace, then we will be humble people, not proud. We'll hear a message like last week and leave not thinking, it's about time. We'll leave going, that's actually about me. And we'll also be people who will yearn so deeply within us to be holy because we want more and more and more of Christ's kingdom and his glory. So that is the context. Let's look at seven warnings from the text. The first is this, that hypocrisy in verse 1 is noticed by God. Look at verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So verse 1 changes the focus from the wrath of God being revealed against immorality to the wrath of God being revealed against hypocrisy. Last week was a challenging message to put together exegetically and because it was so controversial. You know what, this week, this is a hard message emotionally. Because the reality is, who in this room isn't guilty at some level of hypocrisy? We're all guilty of hypocrisy, aren't we? We're all guilty of hypocrisy, aren't we? We're all guilty of hypocrisy, aren't we? If you're like, no, guilty, right there. You see, friends, God sees the high-handed, obvious, flaunting sinner. But he also sees the hypocritical sinner. 
He sees the person who flaunts their immorality, but he also sees the person who hides their rebellion in politeness and morality and having it all together. The word therefore begins our section and it serves as a connecting word from chapter 1 into chapter 2. We've just seen what happens when God's truth is suppressed. It results in immorality of all kinds. When human beings trade the truth of who God is for a lie, they suppress the truth in all manner of sinful behavior. But there's another kind of suppression of truth as well, and that is when religious or moral people suppress the truth about what is really true about themselves. The fact of the matter is that moral people can be just as judgmental of others while still being just as guilty. And there's some of you that are here today in church, and it took you years to get over somebody who acted like that. I mean, you, you, you honestly thought, and I get it, and I'm sorry for really wacky church people in your life. And you thought, I'm not going to the church, it's full of hypocrites. Well, guess what? That's true. It is. At one level. The fact of the matter is we all have levels of hypocrisy within us. That's why Paul says, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. See, he's he's fighting against this tendency in our hearts, especially if you're moral, to believe that you're the exception to the rule. We're, We're a funny lot, aren't we, as human beings? Because we, we, we want people to give us the benefit of the doubt more than we're willing to give them. We view our sins as imperfect and imperfections as less consequential than the sins of others. We are outraged by the actions of others, but we excuse the very same actions in ourselves because there's all sorts of reasons why I acted this way. So how dare you talk to me like that? But I got every reason in the world why I should talk to you like that. That is, that's who we are. Paul says, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment... On another, you condemn yourself. Now, just a little sidebar here on judging. I mean, there's like two verses that everybody in the world knows that are in the Bible. The first one is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, you know, da-da-da-da-da. I I know the rest of the verse, just so you know, okay? So I I, I do. I'm not saying da-da-da, just to, like... Okay, anyways, so... I did that first service, and I, did, I, I don't mean it disrespectfully, but we've got to move on. So anyway, so John three sixteen. the second verse is this. Judge not, lest ye be judged. And anybody who's ever quoted that verse to me wags their head, right? <laughs> it's like it's in the Bible, in King James, right? Waggest thou head now, right? So... Judge not, lest ye be judged. So what's going on with that? I don't, you should not have a dim view of judging. That kind of judging that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 is when you judge somebody hypocritically. You're, you're definitive like you're God and you're like riding somebody. And yet the Bible also says that Christians, particularly the church, is, we are to judge. And meaning that we are to connect conduct with character and you need somebody to connect conduct and character in your life. You need the church to say, look, if you act like this, This means that you have issues in your heart, the connection between your conduct and your character. There's a direct line between those. And the Bible tells us that if you don't make those connections, you're actually proud as a church. Here's why. Because you're more concerned of keeping up appearances than getting into the messy reality of people's lives. Because people don't like to have their conduct connected to their character. So when he says don't judge, we're not talking about some sort of judge. 
um, some sort of fair assessment of character and conduct. Rather, what he's talking about here is the kind of hypocritical and self-righteous condemnation that happens when you think you're better than somebody else. The second part of verse 1 is critical. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So the key to understanding what he means by judging is that you're judging while you're practicing the same things. In other words, the dark content content of Romans chapter 1 that we looked at last week ought to make every single one of us humbled before God. I worked really hard to try and help you understand that exchange and how it affects every single one of us because I did not want you walking out of here and it is really dangerous for your soul if you walked out of here last Sunday thinking that was a great sermon about those people. If that happens, I failed you and that is really dangerous for your soul because it is really easy for people in a facility like this who've come to church on a Sunday Our tendency is we can trust in our background, we can trust in our conservative values, our Christian morality, and that we've never struggled with such and such. And friends, that does not make us immune from God's judgment or his close examination of our lives. God knows you better than you know yourself, and so Romans 1 should not end with us saying, I'm glad I'm not like that. Because Paul says, that's hypocrisy, and that's a problem. That's warning number one. Warning number two, in verse two and three, is that God is just. It says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. And Paul, it's beautiful. He is, he is setting them up. So in verse 2, we know that the righteousness or the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. He's almost like he's begging for an amen. And some people are like, amen, that's right. The judgment of God falls on those things. And then verse 3, do you suppose, oh man, that you who judge those who do such things and you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Oh. How about you amen that one? Paul's a pastor. He knows us. He knows people. This is especially important for the Jewish people because they were God's chosen people. They had been given the law. Their morality was so different than the world in which they lived. They were a set-apart people. They were really radically different than their pagan world. And what Paul wants them to be aware of is their tendency, in light of the law, in light of their special treatment, would be to think, yeah, all of those people, it's no wonder God is judging them. And Paul turns the direction, well, what about you? He uses God's justice and their belief in it, and he turns it against them. You believe in God's justice? Absolutely. You think he's going to spare you? You see, the problem is, is that human beings have a tendency, and we have this from birth, whether you're 5 years old or 50 years old, whether you're 6 or 67 or 70, it doesn't matter. Our tendency is we force rank sin issues. We love to do this. We have certain sins that are like the big ones. And then our sins, yeah. And so as a result, we carry this sort of standard around with us so that we feel better about ourselves. And while it's true that there are sins that have more consequences than others, the fact of the matter is we are all guilty before God. 
The darkness of Romans chapter 1 affects and permeates all of us. You see, what, what can happen is a list of sins can quickly turn on you and become the means by which you create a proud, self-justifying heart. Some of you grew up in churches like that. They had the, the dirty dozen, the nasty nine, the problematic six, you know, whatever they were. Those, those, those sins that we don't do this, we don't do this, we don't do this, we don't do this. Oh yeah, but we, you do this. And the, well, that's not the list. This is the list. So what Paul does is he shows us that God is just. That's the warning. You think he's going to be just on one side of the ledger and not on your side of the ledger? Third, Paul warns them and us that the blessings of God do not equal his approval. Sometimes we can misinterpret the blessings of God. We can think, well, I've been blessed with these things. It must be that God is pleased with me as if we are innocent. We need to be reminded often that God has been kind to us, not because we deserved it. Therefore, Paul gives us two rhetorical questions in verse 4. The first one is this. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? The word presume means to like assume. So do you assume that his kindness and his forbearance and his patience are in effect because you are innocent? Is that, is that what you think? You think that there's a direct relationship between God's blessing and your innocence? Of course, the answer is no. And then the second question, another rhetorical question. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So notice, the kindness of God is not because you're innocent, it's despite your innocence. And the kindness of God is meant not to send you a message that you're doing really well, but instead, His kindness is meant to send you a message that you need to turn from the way that you're heading instead of turn to Him. That's the point. Rather than willfully forgetting God, the religious person comes to believe that he or she deserves the blessing that God gives. Remember the problem in Romans chapter 1 was the fact that they didn't honor God, nor were they, nor were they thankful. So the pagan person doesn't even think about God, doesn't acknowledge God. But the religious person, what they do is they thank God for it, but they think they deserve it. So it's equally as sinful, it's just a different angle on it. The, 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 the pagan person refuses to acknowledge God's authority over their life, so they refuse to be thankful, they refuse to, refuse to honor Him. But the religious person sees that these things come from God, and they're grateful. The problem is, is they think that God owes them those gifts. Luke 18, take your Bible, I need to show you this text. This is, I remember running into this parable a number of years ago, and it was stunning to me. What happens here? It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and Jesus is telling this parable for the same reason that Paul is writing Romans chapter 2. It says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That fits Romans 2, doesn't it? Verse 10, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, skip ahead to the tax collector. Verse 13, even the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Back up to the Pharisee. 
But the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed. His prayer is really important. It's the point of the parable. He prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Notice that. The religiously proud person's heart is so warped that even in their praying, they could have the audacity to say something like, God, I thank you that I am not like these other people. So they honor God with their lips. Oh, they say thank you, but their prayers are so distorted and perverted by their own self-delusion that they actually have the audacity to thank God that they're not like the rest of these people on the earth. And in their praying like that, they give evidence that their hearts are so far away from Him. The blessings of God do not equal His approval. You know, you can thank God for the gifts and still miss the gifts because of your own pride. The warning here is to be sure that you do not equate the blessings of God with His approval. Everything you have, everything I have is an undeserved gift. That's the point. Fourth, the warning here is that truth resisted hardens the heart. So the fourth warning was about misinterpreting the blessings. This warning now is getting to the problem underneath their religious moralism, which is that they have a hard heart. And this would have been a term, an idea that Old Testament Jews would have been familiar with because throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, particularly Jeremiah, focus on the hard heart. And they say things like Jeremiah does in 4.4, like circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your heart. We'll see Paul pick up that idea of circumcision again in um, verses 28 to 29 of this chapter. But this section is simply relaying the point that when religious people resist the truth, it has an effect on them. It hardens the heart. Look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now that day of wrath, day of wrath thing should sound familiar to you because in chapter 1 and verse 18 we heard that the wrath of God is being revealed to heaven. It was being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So the wrath of God is being revealed presently against ungodliness, but the wrath of God also is being stored up for a future day. Unless the religious person think that he or she could be spared because of their moral activities... Paul talks about the final day when God's wrath will be revealed and in effect by not responding to the truth that's in front of them, they are storing up wrath for that very day. You see what happens is that you can be around truth so often and so much. You can be near the truth and by not responding to it, you develop a callousness to it. So you could... You could hear the truth and not respond, and then you get used to not responding. So you you walk away from a a message thinking, man, that's an awesome message for so-and-so. Hope they were listening. And never think, oh, that was actually about me. It's one of the dangers, by the way, if great blessing of being raised in a Christian home, being exposed to God's truth throughout the course of your lifetime. There's... Wonderful. No one would ever, I never want to take that, that blessing away from you at all, but I would offer you this caution. But you could assume because you've known a truth, you've lived the truth. 
Because you understand the truth, you've actually internalized that truth. And what happens is if we don't apply the truth that we hear and respond to it, it creates a hardening of the heart where we no longer even are affected by the truth that used to affect us. We develop a callousness, if you will, and there are consequences for that condition. Robert Mounts, in his commentary on this passage, says this, the person who knows but resists the truth does not go away from the encounter morally neutral. Truth resisted hardens the heart. It makes it all the more difficult to recognize truth the next time around. Life is not a game without consequences, he says. It makes it more difficult to recognize that truth. You think, oh, I, got, I can believe this. I'll know this. I need to learn this for the rest of my life. Wrong. The next time that truth comes around, and the next time, it may very well be that your heart is so hardened that you don't even recognize that you need to respond to that truth anymore. You've lost the ability to hear what has happened to you as now these things have just become a part of your everyday existence and they no longer affect your soul. How, how many of you, to illustrate this, how many of you right now have a check engine light on in your vehicle? Let me see your hands. Keep, keep them up. We're talking about hypocrites, so just hold it up. Keep your hands up. Keep, keep them up. Please. Procrastinators unite. Just keep them up, all right? Just hold on. All right. So how many of you with your hands up, keep them up, if your check engine light has been on longer than a week, a month, Four months. Yes, all right. Okay, so here's what, I have one of those lights on my uh, dashboard of my vehicle, although I'm convinced it's a, you know, needs service to bring it in to sell me more goods. I think that's part of what the gig is. I don't know they have a, some kind of control mechanism to turn that thing on. It's just a little suspicious. But anyway, so someone got into my car, and they're like, hey, your check engine's like, lights on. I'm like, really? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just, it just became part of the dashboard, right? <laughs> Moved to Indianapolis and went to a dentist here in town for the first time and she was like something's not right with like your mouth and i'm like the bible says that i know but you know she's like she's from a dent from a dental standpoint and i said yeah i got this tooth on this side it hurts so i chew on on this side she's like how long has it been like that i'm like ah, two years and she's like what? why didn't you get this fixed it's like i don't know it just hurts a little bit i just chew on the other side it's fine she's like you need both sides of your mouth. I'm like, all right. So I got it fixed, but well, I just kind of adjusted my life, right? I just kind of got used to it after a while. And that's what happens when it comes to spiritual truths, is we get so accustomed to the truth that our hearts become hardened to them. Oh, I hope that doesn't happen today. Fifth warning from verse 6 is that actions matter. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Now let me make something really clear, and that is this. We are saved, a person is forgiven of their sins, not by their works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. It means no matter what you do, you can never earn your salvation. It has to be given to you as you put your faith and believe in God's promises over you about what Jesus has done for you. That said... There's also another error, which is thinking that works do not matter. According to this text, actions matter. We will, he will render to each one according to his works. In other words, the way that God will give evidence on the final judgment day that people are worthy of his judgment is by laying before them the evidence 
of their works. So there's divine accountability for the things that human beings do. And the Bible says that actions matter. While salvation is not based upon works, judgment is. The fact of the matter is works really matter. In other words, genuine faith shows up with life change. St. Augustine put it this way. Faith alone saves, but the kind of faith that saves is not alone. So sinful Jews are not going to be able to stand before God at the judgment and say, but we're Jewish. Or, in our context, I grew up in a Christian home. I memorized all the books of the Bible. Backwards. In Greek and Hebrew. I mean, not going to be able to say any of those things. You're not going to be saying, I gave this much money to church. I, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. The fact of the matter is that none of these things are going to stand before God. Those works will only be the things that will instead serve as our condemnation. And yet the flip side is also true that actions really, really matter. You, you can't even say, well, I prayed a prayer when I was five years old. I walked the aisle, I signed a card, I know what I did. The fact of the matter is, if that doesn't translate, not into perfection, but if that doesn't translate into a changed life, there was no fruit, you went AWOL after that, the fact of the matter is all you did was walk an aisle, get wet, and sign a card. Actions matter. That's what Paul's point is here. The sixth warning is that eternity is connected to our present lives. The sixth warning here requires a little of explanation because it seems to contradict a little bit of what Paul has said already throughout Romans 1, and that is that we're saved by faith, not by works. And what he does is he wants to connect where we live now with what we're seeking after. He wants to show us that, look, where where you are right now needs to reflect the, the place that you're driving towards. And so what he does is he uses a um, a literary device in the New Testament called a chiastic formula. And what he does is he makes a point, this first truth we'll call that A, and then he makes another point, B. He illustrates the B truth with a statement and then illustrates the A truth with another statement. So it goes A, B, B, A. So like an arrow. And this chiastic formula is meant to drive us towards a particular point. And that is this, that A, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. And then back to A down at the bottom. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. The point is what you're seeking after is where your home in heaven really is. That's the point, that your heart is moving towards an eternity of glory, therefore you seek glory in terms of the glory of Christ now. Then B, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but uh, obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. And so what Paul's point here is, is this, that people seek those things that they really love and long for. And there's a connection between what you seek after now And who you really are. He's saying that there is a validating part of genuine faith that's connected to what we do with our lives. 
Last week we read this text. I want you to see it again in 1 Corinthians 6. It's the same thing that Paul says in the letter to the church at Corinth. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Actions matter. That's the point. There's a connection between where you're headed and how you're living now. doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that you're changed. And such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So what Paul is doing is trying to help us to see that it's not just about those people. It's not just about people outside of the religious circles. The people within the context of religion and morality need to think carefully because just because you know the truth doesn't mean you're living in the truth. And just because you can talk about the truth doesn't mean that you're actually internalizing the truth. And he wants you to see that A changed life is a part of what it means to have genuine faith. Again, it doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means that at the end of the day, something different is about you. And the warning here is that you could hear Romans chapter 1 last week and think, man, those awful wretched sinners and be a person who's guilty of judgment even now because your faith isn't truly genuine. It's just a sham of moralism. I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do this, I don't do that. But the fact of the matter is, yeah, you don't do all this, but you got a whole list of things over here that give evidence that you're not a child of God. And then Paul ends with the seventh warning, which is God is impartial. Verse 11 is short. It's clear, it's sober. God shows no partiality. He will not be persuaded with excuses or explanations, justifications. He can't be bribed, can't be threatened. And for that matter, what are you going to do with a God who knows you better than you know yourself? We're not talking about a polygraph test here. We're talking about standing before a God and you don't even need to say a word because he knows not only the thoughts in your heart and in your mind, he knows the things you don't want him to know that are in there. And he knows it all and he sees it. Can you imagine how horrifying that is? Or how gracious that is, because even though he knows us, he still loves us. And the text says that there is no partiality with God. God has not given you what you deserve. We don't deserve any of the blessings that he's given us. He stayed his hand in judgment for a while. But don't make the mistake of thinking that there isn't going to be any judgment. God is impartial. So this is a warning. This final warning here is to religious people. Last week's warning would be to people who are sort of outside of the religious sphere, people who would be considered pagans, kind of those people, so to speak. And I tried to connect it to the commonality between outside and inside with the exchange of God's glory. But Paul now gets very specific in regards to people who are moral or religious or have all of the appearances of what is good and right. So where does this leave us? Here's the final challenge, and it's this. There are two words that I want to drive into your heart today, and those two words are humility and holiness. When you understand the message of Romans 2 and in light of the previous text, these two words, humility and holiness, have to be a part of the application because these words flow right out of an understanding of the gospel. If you embrace the fact that you are broken so deeply 
If you embrace the fact that you are broken so profoundly in your being, and if you turn to Jesus to receive his righteousness by faith, you will understand humility because you know you have been given something that you absolutely didn't deserve. And that frame of reference changes how you see everything else in life. And when you realize that you have been given a righteousness that you don't, doesn't belong to you and God has mercifully covered your sin it motivates you to do what is right not because you have to because now you want to now you want to love him and you want to give your heart and life to him it means that you embrace what it means to be humble it means that you know god you rescued me from myself it means you understand that you are absolutely hopeless apart from jesus and when you hear sin lists like last week that you're you're not thinking about other people Because you don't know what they've done. You know what you've done. You're cognizant of your own violations. And what's more, you see all the blessings of God around you and you realize that everything you have is a gift and you deserve absolutely none of it. And the more you understand about your depravity, like in Romans chapter 1, the more glorious the gospel becomes as you see and savor God. There was nothing in me that merited your favor. There's nothing in me that warranted this mercy. It is only because of you and not because of me. And you are brought lower and lower and lower and you go lower and you are happier and happier and happier as you go lower because you realize that it's all about you and it's nothing about me. You are humbled Here's the second word, and this is the word holy. It means, oh, oh, I hope I can just press this into you, that you are not justified by your works, that God gave you a righteousness that he requires of you, and because of that, you're a different person. It doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means that now you have the power of the Holy Spirit within you, that you see life differently. You have the power to say no to sin and say yes to righteousness. You have new desires that could only come from God. And it means that somewhere deep within you, a a switch has been flipped. And once you pursued everything that was wrong, and now you desire to pursue what is right. And within your soul is this longing to be holy, to be righteous, and to say, God, I want to be a, a godly person more so than what I was last year and last week and yesterday. And I want to pursue you and pursue you and love you and know you and experience all of the fullness of what it means for you to be king and lord of my life and i want the display of jesus to infect every aspect of my life because i am so tired of sin and so weary of its effects i want more jesus in every aspect of my being i want to be holy that is what happens when you understand the beauty of the gospel it is that you are passionate For the full display of the righteousness of Jesus in every corner of your life. And the more you see your depravity, the more you know, oh, you got to go here, Jesus, and you got to be here. I need your help here, and I need your help here. And you see the expanse of what needs to be done, and yet you want for him to be there as king and lord and master. See how different it is than hearing a sin list and going, yeah, that's right, those people need to hear that. How just absolutely antithetical that is to the gospel. You hear Romans chapter 1, if you get it, that list, that 
Wave after wave of darkness should propel us to be, oh God, I need a Savior. I need a helper. I need someone to change me because this is who I am in the depth of my being. And I want these things to never be named in my life. And the little remnants that are left, I want them gone, gone, gone because I want to be like you, Jesus. And that passion and that penchant for the glory of Jesus is the miracle of the new birth that God has created in you. Romans 2 helps us to see that God's unbelievable kindness is designed to lead us to repentance. His kindness is meant for us to repent of our pride. His kindness is meant for us to repent of our sinfulness. And my question today is, Are you hearing what he, through the Spirit, is trying to say today about humility and holiness? As we go to the Lord's table, we're going to just take some time to to ask ourselves that question. So how is this thing of humility and holiness really going? Let's bow together in prayer. Those who are serving us in communion, if you'd come and be ready to serve us. And I close in prayer. Oh, Father, how we need your mercy. How we need your grace for us to be able to see ourselves and to be able to see the gospel clearly. So as we receive these elements today, Lord, let those who know you and love you and follow you, receive these dynamic symbols as another reminder of your incredible kindness. And pray that you would propel us towards more humility and more holiness because of Romans 2 and our time around this table. So come, Jesus. Use bread and juice as markers for what it means for us to have embraced the gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.